I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. If you have the Pew Bibles, it begins on page 1003, goes to page 1004. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 12. I would also invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. God, give us eyes to see. And as we come to a very challenging text. Um, Would you give us clarity? God, by your spirit, would you speak and make your word clear to us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We come now to one of the most challenging, uh, one of the most debated passages in all of scripture. Uh, Probably one of the passages that causes the most consternation (laughs) uh, at times. And there are a lot of hard things in the Bible. Uh, There are a lot of things that there are multiple views, multiple interpretations on. Uh, There is a series of books that Zondervan has put out. Uh, A lot of them are four views on whatever it's called the counterpoint series. Uh, Some of them are two views. Some of them are five views. There's like two, three, four, and five views. Most of them are four views. Uh, Things such as church government, uh, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, So that would be something we would look at those and say, this is why we are Presbyterian and not Baptist. We would have arguments that we would would make on some of these issues. Those are important things. Uh, Things like creation and the millennium. How did it all begin and how is it all going to end? Those are things that Different Christians disagree on. And as interesting as all of those topics can be, those are probably not the types of issues that most of us will lay in bed at night thinking about. Uh, You're probably not losing a ton of sleep over the interpretation of the creation days in Genesis. Uh, If you're like James and preparing for your licensure examinations and you had to defend your view, maybe you lost some sleep, but most of us. Uh, Do not lose sleep over those things. But I would venture to guess that most of us have laid in bed thinking about the issues that are brought up in Hebrews chapter 6. Apostasy, turning away from the faith. Perseverance, assurance, eternal security. I know in, in talking to some of you, these are things that you've wrestled with very deeply in your lives This is one of those texts that can actually create more questions than it does give answers. And you will probably leave here today with more questions than you, than answers that I've given or that you feel like maybe you've gained from the text. And that's okay. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to have all of the answers. This is 
a complicated issue. Um, but I think sometimes maybe we make it a little more complicated than it needs to be. So I'm going to do my best to be faithful to the scriptures and consistent with our system of doctrine. Living Stone Church is unashamedly Presbyterian. Okay, we're not going to apologize for that. We hold to the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the larger and shorter catechisms, which James mentioned, mentioned the shorter catechism. Our elders have taken vows to teach and to preach faithfully the scriptures in accordance with our system of doctrine that is taught in the Westminster Standards. And so there are no surprises here. This is not like this choose your own adventure preaching when you come to Living Stone. We don't just like flip over. What am I going to preach on this week? Oh, Ezekiel 30. Here we go. No, we're, not, we're not just like making stuff up. We're not just doing whatever we feel like. Um, there, is, there is a standard and you should come here not being surprised with anything that you're going to hear. Okay. Um, our interpretation of this passage is going to be consistent uh, with a historic Reformed and Presbyterian interpretation. Um, and so we just want to make that clear up front. Like we obviously are coming at this from a certain perspective and that's what we're going to teach. And that's what we believe. Uh, and that just acknowledging there are disagreements on these things. Um, I did send out an email this week to all of you uh, with an encouragement to read this passage, uh, to pray for your own hearts and your own heads, to pray for me. Uh, so thank you for that. And then also to read Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapters 14 through 18. If you haven't had a chance to do that yet, go home and do that uh, later today. But chapters 14 through 18 in the Westminster Confession might take you 10 or 15 minutes to read it. Um, covers topics of saving faith, repentance unto life, good works, the perseverance of the saints, and the assurance of grace and salvation. Those are all topics that are covered in this passage. Uh, they're things that we often wrestle with and must seek to faithfully understand according to scripture so that we can both understand them ourselves and then humbly communicate them to others. So I mentioned last week that I had been reading a book called Four Views on the Warning Passages in Hebrews. Uh, it, I did not finish the whole thing. I read two of the main sections um, where one person would give their view and then the other three would all respond to that view. Two Calvinist views and two Arminian views. So there was a lot of overlap between the two Calvinists and the two Arminian views and the responses. So I only read about a little over half the book, but uh, very good, uh, very helpful to think through some of these issues. And one of the Calvinists began his essay by quoting from another essay written by Professor William Klein titled Exegetical Rigor with Hermeneutical Humility, the Calvinist-Arminian Debate in the New Testament. So how can we dig into the text rigorously, unpack it, and yet interpret it and explain it to other people in a humble way. And listen to what this professor says. He says, embracing one another in love is Jesus' criterion of discipleship. As love covers a multitude of sins, it ought also to cover all our inadequacies of interpretation due to our pre-understandings and the other failings to which we are prone as we do our interpretive work. Too often, evangelicals with different interpretations of issues like election have resorted to rock-throwing, impugning motives, or cavalierly dismissing their opponents' views as if one side had a corner on correct methodology or as if pre-understandings adversely affected only the other side. We might learn about the merits of alternative views if we did not see their proponents as completely misguided or lacking in exegetical ability. More important items crowd our agenda as Christians in an unbelieving world than to attack fellow Christians. This rigorous and humble approach must characterize the way that we do our theology while we still seek to get it right, and then the way we engage with others who differ, whose views differ from our own. Now, it is way beyond the scope of this sermon to present this in a 
four views type of format. I'm not going to unpack what all of these different, and there's, there's kind of lots of nuances in each one of those views. But again, I'm going to share as best as I can what the Reformed and Presbyterian interpretation on these things is. Again, that's why chapters 14 through 18 of the Confession are super helpful in this. And as a result, I hope that you will come away with a better understanding of what we as a church believe. And though I'm not, again, I'm not going to directly address other positions, I hope you will be able to see um, why we don't hold those views. So we want to be very clear about what we do believe and why we don't believe um, certain things. So kind of a long introduction, but I, I hope that's helpful as we dive into this passage. We're going to break this down into three sections two negative exhortations, and then one positive exhortation. I'll list them as we go. The first exhortation is don't fall away. Don't fall away. The topic of apostasy is a very challenging one. And it hits close to home for any of us who have been in the church for any length of time. We all know people, perhaps friends, family, former pastors and elders, those who have turned away from the faith that they once claimed to believe. I know for myself, from my group of friends that I had in college and involved in campus ministry with, some of them have turned away from the faith and no longer claim to be Christians. Some of the students that I worked with in China who claim to be Christians no longer do so. And until Christ returns, there will continue to be those who apostatize. While this should grieve us deeply, it should grieve us to see people turning away from a faith they once claimed to believe in, it should not surprise us. It should not surprise us that this is so. And this really hit home uh, closely for me this week. On Monday, uh, I happened to see someone posted something on Twitter of a video that was released from someone on his Facebook page. So I went and and checked that out. Uh, It was from a founding member of the Christian hip hop group, Cross Movement, the Cross Movement. Uh, As a new Christian, I I grew up listening to, to secular hip hop music. And as a new Christian, I was introduced to this group, the Cross Movement. Uh, they had an, an immense impact on my, my, my life, my Christian walk. I learned a ton of theology. I learned a ton of scripture from listening uh, to their music. This is not some guys who just like traveled around and, and did a bunch of music. They were engaged in ministry. They were engaged in, in apologetics and evangelism. They actually came and did a concert in Oshkosh in 2003. Uh, we still lived in La Crosse at the time and um, came with some buddies and, and went to the concert here. It was, it was amazing. Um, but anyways, uh, on Monday I went and, and followed this link to this video where he's explaining kind of where he's at in his life. And he goes on to say that he sent a letter to his church withdrawing his membership. Uh, he said not only withdrawing his membership from his local church, but telling them he was withdrawing his membership from the invisible church, from the universal church. And he said, I am denouncing the Christian faith that I have believed, professed, proclaimed, and defended for the last 30 years of my life. Had a couple conversations this week with uh, another pastor and elder from one of our churches in Milwaukee, who had also been blessed by their music and kind of similar response that I had. I was just feeling grieved, right? Feeling saddened that this guy who I looked up to, this guy who I'd met in person, right? Been to his concert, got to talk with him after this concert, who is now saying, I'm, I'm turning away from, from the things I've believed in and proclaimed. I traveled around the world uh, doing ministry. And as I was thinking about this, I, we had a Presbyterian meeting yesterday in Wausau, so I, I wanted to re-listen to it on the way. So I, I re-listened because I was didn't remember I, I took some notes as I watched it the first time but I there's something that stuck out that I thought stuck out to me that I wanted to watch again to make sure I was right on this but as I listened back through it there was not a single mention he didn't say the name Jesus one single time he didn't say Christ 
Uh, he said kind of God generically. He talked a lot about the Bible. He talked about Christianity as like a system, right? But he never once talked about Jesus. And I just found that so fascinating that he's, he's turning away from, he claims to be turning away from some system that he can't agree with anymore or some interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and he said he's going to be doing some future videos. So I'm very curious to kind of see if he's actually going to get into that. But very troubling to see that there's no mention of Christ, right? No mention of his relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not just something, it's not like building some Legos. It's not like we just have this box of all these theoretical ideas, right? All these doctrines, and we just kind of start stacking them all together on top of each other and putting them together and saying, well, I hope this holds together, right? I hope all these ideas, these philosophies, I hope they hold together when life gets crazy. No, it must be centered on a person. It must be centered on Christ. We've been hammering this over and over as we go through Hebrews. Jesus is better. This isn't just some catchy phrase. This must be the heartbeat of all of our lives. So even as we get into this, we get into the weeds of all of this, stuff about apostasy and, and perseverance and assurance. It's all about Jesus. It's not about like, does the Calvinist interpretation or the Arminian interpretation or this type of Calvinist interpretation or this type of Arminian interpretation, get it, get it right. Those things matter, right? We want to, we want to unpack those things, but if we lose sight of Jesus in the midst of that conversation, we're getting off track. And this passage doesn't let us lose sight of Jesus, right? The whole thing is about him and how we're treating him and how we're relating to him. So how are we to respond when we hear something like this, right? When we hear a story of someone like this that hits close to home. Our response cannot be simply emotional. It is okay to be grieved. It's, it's probably good to be grieved in a situation like this. It's good to be praying for these people. But we must have a biblical framework for thinking through this. And I think Hebrews 6 gives us one of the most robust accounts of how to think through this, how to approach this topic. And there are many warnings throughout Hebrews, and we must take all of those into account as well, along with several other New Testament texts that inform the way we ought to understand apostasy. So let's look a little more closely now at verses 4 through 6. This is really kind of the meat of this passage. This is the most debated part of this passage. I think as we look at this, it's helpful to get the sense of what our author is saying here. And in the ESV, it's a little bit hard to follow his, his argument. Um, the ESV does a good job translating this. It's, it's faithful to the original word order. Um, but some other translations bring out the actual sense of this passage a little bit more. Probably the best way to understand what the argument is here is to take uh, the first part of verse 4 and then jump down. Uh, to take the second part of verse six. So it should, we should understand it in this way. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance. Okay, the impossibility is restoring again to repentance. So everything that comes in between that is kind of this, these are all participles that support the main idea, right? It, the impossibility of restoring to repentance. So it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who... Right? And then we have this list of five things that we see in these verses. These are five descriptions of those whom it is impossible to restore again to repentance. First one, those who have once been enlightened. Now, this word enlightened is used in the New Testament to refer both to people in general and to Christians in particular. John chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, says the true light, which gives light to everyone, that's the meaning of enlightening, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, as we've said here many times, and we continue to say, we are not universalists. Uh, when we say that Jesus gives light to everyone, that does not mean that everyone is going to be saved, right? 
This is a general enlightenment that means that Jesus coming into the world, Jesus shining the light into the world has an impact on the world, right? That people, those who walked with Jesus, those who lived at the time, they gained a knowledge of of the truth of who God was just by being in his presence, but they didn't all believe it, right? So this this idea of um, this general light, it's not in and of itself salvific. So there are people who, who we could say are enlightened, right? Because of the light of Jesus impacts them, but that doesn't absolutely mean that those people are saved. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it is used of Christians in particular, where our author tells, our, tells the audience here to recall the former days after you were enlightened. So there's a specific meaning of enlightened that means, yes, they are saved. Um, historically in the early church, a lot of the early church fathers viewed this here enlightenment as a reference to baptism. Okay. Which then we go on to the next one. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. So if enlightenment is referring to baptism, perhaps the tasting of the heavenly gift is referring to the Lord's supper. So again, this was a view in the early church. Uh, it likely has a, a little bit broader of a meaning than that. Uh, just referring to the grace of God, uh, referring to common grace, uh, the, the benefits that people get from being in, among a Christian community. Third, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. This could be referring to participation in the use of spiritual gifts. First uh, Corinthians 12 and other passages, uh, the apostles and early the disciples of Jesus um, participating in the use of spiritual gifts. Fourth, those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. This is probably referring to the preaching of the word of God and signs and wonders uh, being carried out. Uh, people experienced these things. They tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So there are four types of um, things that people experience. And then the fifth thing here is in the beginning of verse six, and then have fallen away. So now we come to the question, well, who is this talking about, right? Who are verses four through six talking about? What type of person is this? And I think as we think about this, it's helpful to ask the question, how many types of people are there? First of all, we need to, we need to clarify that. I think a lot of times people would argue, well, there's just two types of people in the world, right? There's Christians and then there's non-Christians. Those, there are those who believe, those who are in the church, but, and those who, are, who do not believe and who are outside of the church. But I think it's actually probably helpful to think of it more in this way, that there are actually three types of people in the world. There are two types of people in the church, and then there is one type of person outside of the church. So we still have the category of Christian and non-Christian, right? Christian in the church, non-Christian outside of the church. But there is another type of person inside of the church. So inside of the church, we have the elect, those who believe, those who God brings to salvation. And then we have the unregenerate or the apostate. Here we are concerned with the two types of people within the church. Those who are outside of the church clearly like at the time of this writing, our author is not thinking about people who are thousands of miles away, who have not yet, the gospel has not yet reached. Clearly, they would not, that would make no sense, right, to fit them into this category. So it is a, it is a category of people who are inside of the church, who have received these benefits. They are beneficiaries of these things. So let's consider some examples from the rest of the New Testament, both particularly and generally. Some specific examples of unregenerate or apostate people, clearly probably the first one we think of is Judas, right? Judas walked with Jesus and the disciples. He participated in the ministry of healing and of casting out demons. All of the things that are listed here very clearly were things that Judas would have partaken in. And no one around him, none of the other disciples, until the Last Supper, right, when Jesus reveals that Judas is the one who's going to betray him, no one had any idea. The whole time, he was doing all the right things, he was saying all the right things, 
Nobody had any idea that Judas was the one who was going to betray Jesus, that he would actually renounce this, this faith, right, that he probably proclaimed to believe. Another example, Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, uh, who trad- later tradition seems to affirm that he went on to be a, a heretic and, and kind of lead this kind of cultish movement. And you might wonder here about where the Apostle Peter fits into this discussion. Did he not also deny Christ? Well, here we need to make a helpful distinction between apostasy and backsliding. Okay? And Simon Kistemacher, in his commentary, points out that we cannot confuse these two of backsliding and apostasy. This is what he writes. Apostasy does not take place suddenly and unexpectedly. Rather, it is part of a gradual process, a decline that leads from unbelief to disobedience to apostasy. And when the falling away from the faith happens, it leads to hardening of the heart and the impossibility of repentance. Now, this is a good description of what happens to those who have had the experiences listed in verses 4 through 6. Notice that this doesn't just happen suddenly. Somebody doesn't just wake up one day and decide that they're going to turn their backs on Jesus. The cross-movement singer that I mentioned earlier didn't suddenly decide to announce to the world that he no longer considers himself a Christian. He shared that this had been a gradual process and kind of a slow drift for the last five or six years. He talked about he really hasn't been reading his Bible at all, per, kind of personally, uh, for the last five or six years. He was still going to church, kind of still making it, looking on the outside like he was a Christian, but that decline had been going on for years. Well, the next thing that we need to consider is what the author of Hebrews tells us about the reason for the impossibility of repentance. Why is it impossible for those who have had these experiences, and then fallen away to be restored to repentance. And there are two reasons given in verse 6. It says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Again, Simon Kistemacher is helpful here. He says, the one who has fallen away declares that Jesus ought to be eliminated. As the Jews wanted Jesus removed from this earth and thus lifted him up from the ground on a cross, so the apostate denies Jesus a place, banishes him from this earth, and metaphorically crucifies the Son of God again. Thus he treats Jesus with continuous contempt and derision and knowingly commits the sin for which, says the author of the epistle, there is no repentance and no sacrifice, which is a quote from Hebrews 10, 26, which is a a very parallel passage to this. Kistemacher also says, The sinner can expect God's judgment that will come to him as a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Again, a quote from Hebrews 10, 27. So that is the gist of verses 4 through 6, as best as I can break it down for you. It's not speaking of true Christians. Uh, This is speaking of those who have had these experiences and tasted these things and then have gone, have fallen away, have turned their backs on Jesus. But that's just kind of scratching the surface, right? That's just kind of of an introduction of these things. And there are still some tough questions that we need to ask, like, who exactly is our author talking about? Is he referring to... His audience here, whom he encourages in verses 1 to 3 to go on to maturity, clearly addressing them as Christians, and whom he addresses in verses 9 through 12, which we'll come to in a minute. Is that who he is talking about here? I want us to notice the pronouns here in his address. Look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Verse 3. This we will do if God permits. Look at verse 9. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Verse 10, God is not so unjust, is not unjust so as to overlook your work, the love you have shown, and so on and so on. These are first and second person pronouns. It is we and you language. He is talking here to fellow Christians. Now notice who is addressed in verses 4 through 6. It is impossible in the case of those, right? This is all third person. He goes from, and again, sandwiched in between these two sections, right? Where he's saying, go on to maturity. We're sure of better things in your case. Where he's addressing them. Sandwiched in between that is this shift to third person. It's impossible in the case of those, right? He's not talking directly to his audience. He's saying it's, it's they, it's not you. But the tricky thing here then is if this isn't addressed to the recipients of this letter, a lot of people ask the question, well, is this just an empty warning? Why even say this if it doesn't apply to them? Why give this warning if, as he says, In verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Again, this is where we need to remember our three categories of people. It was likely then, and certainly has been true in every congregation throughout church history, that there will be those who were never truly converted. Outwardly, they have the appearance of, of being a Christian, but they were never truly converted. A Christian. The Apostle John makes this clear in 1 John chapter 2, 19. Speaking of Antichrist and the influence of Antichrist, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's not some New thing that the author of Hebrews is introducing in the New Testament here, right? There's a framework for this. There are people who will be in the church, who will be in our midst, who will appear to be Christians, but will eventually go out from among us. Why did we read from Matthew chapter 13? Jesus made it very clear in the parable of the sower. There are four types of soil. All of them hear the word of the kingdom. Connection here with Hebrews 6, 5. Tasted the goodness of the word of God, right? Some received it with joy at first. They responded, yes, this is great, right? But what happens? They are rootless. They endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others fall among thorns and are choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. And Jesus says that they prove unfruitful. Then we read the parable of the weeds, where the wheat and the weeds grow up together. The weeds being planted by the enemy of the sower. And instead of pulling up the weeds and risking also pulling up the wheat, the master tells his servant to wait until the harvest to gather the weeds and to bind them together and burn them and to gather the wheat into the barn. Jesus has already given us a framework for what this looks like. In light of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, we should be able to better understand what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 6. We shouldn't be surprised, and I don't think the author of Hebrews 6 is, the author of Hebrews is surprised. In fact, he picks up on the imagery from these two parables of Jesus in his illustration in verses 7 and 8, which is our second section. So first, don't fall away. Second, don't be barren and fruitless. Verses 7 and 8, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, we won't spend much time on these verses, but I do want us to notice something important here. 
This is not a contrasting picture of, let's say, lush farm fields in south central Wisconsin and barren deserts in southwestern United States, right? This is not something that is thousands of miles apart. And we can say, well, clearly, right? Like, clearly, the farm fields of Wisconsin are lush because of the way they've been for so long and the way they're cared for and the rain that falls here. And clearly the deserts in the Southwest U.S., they don't get any rain, right? You can't grow crops there. That's not what is going on here. This is a picture of two fields that are side by side, right? This is one farmer's land and his neighbor's land right next to them. They both drink the same rain that falls on it. One produces a crop the other bears thorns and thistles. And as see this language here is worthless, cursed, is burned. There's an obvious parallel here with Jesus' parables. And there's actually a pretty clear reference to what God said to Adam after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses three of the same words that we find here in Hebrews chapter 6. God said to Adam, cursed, which is the same word used here in Hebrews 6, that this ground is cursed, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. Same exact words here in verse 8, right? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So this tragic imagery that is our reality due to sin's entrance into our world, is seen here in the spiritual realm as it relates to the two possible destinies of all people. Either fruitful, bearing fruit and being blessed by God, eternal life and salvation, or being barren and being cursed and cut off and burning in hell forever. This is not just an empty warning. So we need to ask ourselves, how do, we, how do we hear this? How ought we to hear this warning? It should produce in us the same response that it does when we read the parable of the sower and the weeds. There should be an examination of our lives. Which kind of soil or which kind of land am I? Right? When you read through these, this isn't meant to just kind of blow off and say, oh, well, that's not me. How, how are we responding to God? How are we responding to the word of God? But for the Christian, this is not meant to be a source of anxiety, okay? We're not meant to read this and say, oh, man, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm not tilling the soil hard enough. Maybe I'm not watering it enough, and I'm going to lose my salvation, We are not meant to worry that we have somehow believed in vain. The warning of apostasy, while, as I already said, we need to to take these things seriously. The warning of apostasy is for those who are in the church and are not truly saved. It is a warning to get right with God now. To trust Jesus now while you still can. To not fall away fully and finally with no chance to repent. This really is just a clear gospel presentation right here in the middle of Hebrews. You do not want to be the field that produces thorns and thistles and ends up cursed and burned. Again, as we've been saying, Jesus is better. It's the whole message of Hebrews. He's better than all of our self-made attempts at salvation. And we are to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Don't turn back, we are told. Don't run to false saviors. Press on and bear fruit for God and persevere in your faith. That's the emphasis in verses 9 through 12. So we've been reminded negatively, don't fall away and don't be barren and fruitless. Now positively and finally, do persevere in full assurance of hope until the end. Do persevere in full assurance of hope until the end. Our author returns now to directly addressing his readers here, beginning in verse 9. Notice the importance of this verse as he makes it clear 
that they are not those mentioned in verses 4 through 6 and verse 8. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. They are those referred to in verse 7 who produce a useful crop and receive a blessing from God. We see in verse 10 that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is not talking about salvation by works. This is why I wanted us to read chapter 16 in the Westminster Confession of Good Works, that chapter of Good Works. 16.2 is very helpful. As it reminds us, it says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Notice the connection that the confession makes with our faith wrought good works and the strengthening of our assurance. I want to tie together now perseverance and assurance. This is the heart behind verses 11 and 12, where he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. If you look back to chapter five, verse 11, He says, you have become dull of hearing. That's the same word. This word for sluggish is the same word as dull of hearing back there. So he's saying, don't be dull of hearing, right? Don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that last line of imitating those, that's what James is going to be touching on next week as we look at uh, verses 13 through 20 and finish off chapter 6. But this all, what we see here in these verses, this ties back to verses 1 to 3 to go on to maturity if God permits. We closed last week with the reminder that our need, we have a need for dependence upon the grace of God. We don't rely upon ourselves, right? We don't rely upon our own works. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology reinforces this as, as he defines perseverance like this. He says, it is, strictly speaking, not man, but God who perseveres. It is not man, but God who perseveres. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. That is the good news that we need to hear. That is the good news that this this audience needed to hear as there were people who were being tempted to, to walk away from the faith, to leave Jesus. It's not that they can do it on their own, because, but it's that God is faithful, that he is the one who causes us to persevere. This is such a crucial reminder for us as we wrestle with this passage and its implications in our lives and in the life of the church. If we read Hebrews 6 and we come away asking, can a Christian lose their salvation? We're not only misreading the passage, in my opinion, but we are misunderstanding what the whole Bible teaches about salvation. There are several Places that we could go to support this, but I think none is more clear than Ezekiel 36. In the midst of God chastising the house of Israel for profaning his name among the nations. This is what he says to them in spite of their sin. He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your forefathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. This promise is fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the one who does these things for us. He is the one who gives us a new heart, who puts his spirit within us, who causes us to walk in his statutes. Jesus, the same one who told the crowds and the religious leaders that he is the bread of life, saying all that the Father gives gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you have looked upon Jesus and believed in him, then you have eternal life because he has given it to you. If you want to ask the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? You have to ask the question, will the same God who says, I will put my spirit in you and I will give you a new heart. Will he remove that new heart and will he remove his spirit? And the answer is no, he will not do it. You can't lose something that you can never gain in the first place. And God will not take it away. Jesus promises that. So just as you first looked upon him and believed in him, continue to do so. That's the encouragement here from Hebrews 6. If you are in Christ, be assured of your salvation. Now this warning, again, it's not an empty warning, right? It's a reminder that there are those who do not believe and who will walk away. And the teaching of the the scripture is we need to examine our lives, right? We need to, are we producing fruit? Like we need to look at ourselves, but we don't ask that question saying, well, maybe I'm not producing as much fruit as so-and-so. So maybe I'm not really saved. That's getting it backwards. Yesterday we were at our Presbyterian meeting and uh, there's a, a brother, Luis Garcia. He was actually here. He came up and shared with us. Uh, we're talking about having him come and preach sometime, but uh, he just moved to Wisconsin from Mexico. He's transferring into our presbytery, planting a Hispanic-speaking church in Waukesha, and he had his uh, full full examinations yesterday before the presbytery. And one of the questions that was asked to him during the Bible section is, "Where in the Bible would you take someone who is struggling with assurance?" And I turned to James right away and I said, "Hebrews six, right." If someone is struggling with assurance of salvation, take them to Hebrews 6. Don't say, oh, this is a really hard passage that might make people doubt their salvation more. No, take them and remind them of of the context of how this is happening. And this is an assurance to those who are in Christ, right? We will persevere because God is faithful. Jesus was crucified for all of those who trust in him. We cannot crucify him again, right? This warning here is a picture of the reality that Jesus died once. He died for our sins. This is a warning to those who have not yet trusted in Christ. To trust him fully and completely, to turn away from their sins while there is still time. Well, as an encouragement to us, I want to, in closing, I want us to turn to the front of our worship guides. I know there have been several quotes today, but this is a fantastic one. 
uh, from Robert Murray McShane that really, really sums this up, uh, really is an encouragement to us as we think about looking to Christ, as we think about resting in him, as we think about the assurance that we have. <clears throat> he quotes from Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? McShane says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Amen. Let us pray. God, we need these reminders from your word of who we are in Christ, of what you have done for us, of the fact that our perseverance in the faith, our assurance of what we have and what is to come is not based upon our ability, but it's based upon your grace. God, we are called to go on to maturity. We are called to persevere and to press on. But as we have seen, as we need to be continually reminded of, it is your work within us. It is the power of your Holy Spirit causing us to bear fruit. God, may we live lives of surrender to you, to your will. May we be those who do not succumb to the temptation to turn away. And may we be those who are bold to declare to those who have maybe made a profession of faith, who have all the outward appearances, but who not truly trust in Christ, to point them to Christ, to point them to faith in him alone, not in any other things that we may seek to substitute. God, remind us of the assurance of our salvation. God, send us out from here knowing that we are secure because Jesus laid down his life. He will not lose any of the ones that you have given to him, and we will be raised up on the last day. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.